Amen. That's good. Amen. Man. God is infinitely better than we can even imagine. But I, uh, man, thank you, worship team, for, uh, for the glimpse. That was good. Make sure you thank these guys. I don't know if you know it. You've been watching their progression Sunday in and Sunday out, but uh, they've been working hard coming up here during the week, getting together during the week. You make sure you, uh, you let them know you appreciate their desire to uh, not only do a good job, but to lead you into worship. And, uh, man, I, I just, I'm extremely thankful to them, but I just was sitting there this morning just thanking God uh, when uh, Preston and Robin left. Uh, many of you, like me, were probably thinking, what in the world are we going to do? But in my heart, I knew, um, uh, not in my flesh, but in my heart, I knew that he was, he was going to take care of us. And he had something better for us, not better in the sense of better skills or better ability. But he, he wasn't leaving us short. It wasn't a sacrifice to send a man and a woman of God out to help another church plant. He was, he was moving them to do his work there, and he was doing something here. And that, this morning, thank you guys. It's, uh, it's a blessing to me, and it's, uh, it's honoring to God. We're in James 1. Grab your Bible, James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles just under the seat there in front of you. But we are in the book of James, and we've said that the theme of James, if you want to give it one, we can put it in the form of a question. Is our faith a fraud? Is your faith a fraud? Is my faith a fraud? Is it fraudulent? Is our faith, you could say, genuine? Is it authentic? Is it legit? How do we know that it's the real deal? When the rubber hits the road, do we keep our faith or do we, we just toss it out? When it gets difficult, do we keep our faith or do we just toss it out when the road's not easy? Do we hold on to it? Do we cling to it? Do we guard it or do we just let it go? Does it get lost somewhere? James, throughout the book, is going to show us that if you're a believer, then life should probably look like this in all different aspects. And he's just going to go through them. And he's just he's just straight, man. He just he just covers it. He starts off here and we've been looking at what do we do when when life just gets hard, when it's not easy, when it's painful? What do we do when we're on our worst day ever? What a, what a bold place to start. He's going to go and talk about how how does the faith look among uh, believers? How does the faith look among other people when we're all prickly and ugly and mean and hurtful? How does our faith look uh, even coming out of our mouth? What does it look like on our, on our lips, our very words? I mean, he gets down to brass tacks here. He doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He just hits us right in the throat, we said, with the truth and with a, with a tough challenge. That's the book of James. He starts very boldly, as we've said before, he starts with maybe what to do on our worst days. What should our faith look like when times are tough? What, what kind of joy can we have in the pain? We started in verse 1, and let me just review some of this, and we're going to pick up this morning in verse 9 in just a few moments. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the brother of Jesus, mind you, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, dispersed because life was hard. They were under persecution. They were poor. They were devastated. And they were dispersed among. They had no building to gather in. They had no body to gather with, so to speak. They, they were scattered. 
to to that situation and to those people and via the Holy Spirit to us. He says this, consider it all joy, my brothers. When you have your best day now, when you have your worst day ever, when you, he says, encounter various trials, various in the sense of there's a whole bunch of different ways that life can slap you in the face, that life can throw a hurdle in front of you. You name it, it can come. Not not if it comes, but when it comes. When one of these various trials of life enters your life, command, consider it all joy, count it as all joy. Why? Because you know something, verse 3. You know that the testing of your faith, it produces something. What does it produce? It produces... It yields, it grows, it matures endurance, hupomone, literally to remain under the load. Like the bench press, like the clean and jerk, you have a weight on your shoulders. For Jesus, it was a cross. Knowing that the testing of your faith, that's the various trials. He equates those various trials to the testing of your faith. He sees them as one and the same, as should we. Here's what you need to know in order to consider it all joy. You need to know that your faith is being tested. And when it is tested, it is producing some fruit in your life. It's not for no reason. It's not because there's nothing good coming out of it. In fact, there is something good coming out of it that can cause you to consider it all joy or to reconcile in your mind that there is some joy. Although maybe not happiness, there is this depth of joy in the spirit's of believers that can cause them to say, I rejoice. I rejoice even in the pain. And it is that even in the pain, this testing of our faith produces something beneficial to our sanctification. Verse 4, we get another command. And let endurance do its work. As if to say, church, you have the tendency to want to run away from the challenge. You have a tendency to want to drop the weight. You have a tendency not to want to do the workout. You have a tendency to want the easy road. But listen, when the hard road comes and when the weight comes and when there's a burden on your life, don't try and run away from it. Don't ask God automatically to take it away even. Remain under the load. Why? Let it do its work because it has a divine intention. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect or mature, you could say, and complete, meaning whole. Lacking in nothing like Christ. But James, I don't I don't understand. He says, well, if that's you, verse five, and you lack wisdom, wisdom here we saw in the context of his teaching is not just general wisdom. It's not just for your general growth in wisdom as a human being. It's if you lack wisdom in regard to the topic at hand. If your understanding, if your comprehension of why God might be allowing you to go through this or allowing you to have this type of struggle or trial for the testing of your faith, if that understanding eludes you, he says, verse five, go to God. And by the way, it's not if you don't understand, it's listen, we all are short when it comes to wisdom because wisdom comes from God alone. It is a divine thing. It doesn't originate in humanity. We need God We need God when it comes to real wisdom. And so he says, go to God. Ask him. 
No hoops. No games. No formulas. Very simply, ask God. For the believer that runs to God in the midst of his various trials with the heart of faith that he will describe in the next couple verses, he says, you need to understand that our God is a gracious and giving God and he will lavish wisdom upon us. He will give it, give it generously. He'll give it without reproach. That means he will not look down upon us when we come. He's not going to say, I can't believe you had to come to me again. What's going on? Haven't you learned your lesson? That's not the kind of God we serve. In that type of trial, our God knows we need to run to him and he longs for us to run to him. And his promise to us is that he will give us not an answer. Not a remedy, not a, okay, I'll take care of that. Or what do you want me to do? I'll do that. No, but he'll give us wisdom. Wisdom is, what do I do with knowledge today? How do I apply what I know about you, God? How do I apply what I know about what you're doing in the testing of my faith? I know that it produces endurance, but help me to help me to understand divinely the wisdom behind this. And, and frankly, we will all find ourselves at that point questioning does, does God really think that this is going to be beneficial for me? Right. I mean, we've been there. It's at that point that we need the wisdom of God. And he says, just ask him. He gives it. He gives it generously without reproach. And he he will give it. For the guy who. For the guy who uh, has a fraudulent faith, though. Here's what he looks like. He's a guy who doesn't ask in faith. He asks doubting. Verse six, seven, eight. For the one who doubts is like, look at this picture. He's like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord because he is double-minded or literally two-souled. In fact, he is unstable in all his ways. It's the picture of you and I drowning in the sea of our trials, of our situations, of our hardships. And instead of knowing that our God is a gracious God and that he longs to give us wisdom, it's a picture of someone whose faith is not genuine and they are in a sense in their heart on the fence is God real is he really there does he really have my best interests in mind could he really be working all things for good does he really even exist at all the double-minded the two-souled cries out in the midst of trials not because he's in love with his God but cries out because he's in midst of trials and maybe Maybe that's the only time he cries out. He's the double-minded man. He, he needs God at certain times and he doesn't need God at other times. Most of the time, he's good on his own. When he's at rock bottom, however, the only place he has to look is up and he cries out for whatever might just help him. Not confident, not sure that there is help, not sure that he can put his faith in his God. He is unstable in all his ways. That's... That's not the believer that James would have us to imitate. He would have us be stable. He would have us have an anchor in our trials. He would have us to be buoyed to our God, our generous, our faithful, our kind, our all-knowing, our wise God. The God who 
is working out our salvation, our sanctification, and our glorification through whatever comes. He would have us to be stable, one-souled, on solid ground, trusting our God. Consider it all joy. You will encounter trials. You need to know something. That those trials are to test your faith. It's not an end in and of itself. The testing of your faith, it produces something. It produces endurance. That endurance, let it do its job. When you're not really sure how God is doing it, even though you know He's doing something, just ask Him. And God will grant you the wisdom. Not the answer, but He'll grant you a wisdom. We can't be the wishy-washy, vacillating guy. We need to be the believer that runs and trusts our God with all that we have. That's where we've been. Jesus, if you think about it, has been the perfect picture of this. In his humanity, in his flesh. He was a perfect picture of this, wasn't he? Flip over a couple pages to your left. You'll be in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews has to say about Jesus when he was in the flesh. When he encountered various trials. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Hebrews 11 is just a list of those who were faithful. By the way, they were faithful in hardship. They would have never made the list of Hebrews 11, mind you, if they hadn't gone through something that proved that they were faithful. Just an interesting little tidbit there about what precedes what we're about to read about Christ. Interesting, isn't it? You don't make it into the hall of faith unless there's something to prove your faith. <laughs> Let endurance have its, have its perfecting result on you. You shuck the load. You throw the weight off. You don't, you don't have a chance of making it into the hall of faith. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 12, he says this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which is so easily entangling us and let us run with, what's the word? Endurance. Same word. James. Upamone. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's a picture of a race course. And then we need endurance throughout it. All right. You noticing some similarities here? Here's what we do. Verse two. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is, by the way, the beginning and the end of our faith. He is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. What is James looking for in the believer? Genuine faith. Who is the author and the perfecter of our faith? Jesus, by the way. Where do we fix our eyes? Fix our eyes on him. Where? On this race course that is developing our endurance. Keep going. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, by the way, here's Jesus' qualifications for us to fix our eyes upon him. Is he qualified? Absolutely. Why? Check this out. For the joy set before him. Now, we fix our eyes on Jesus. And then it's going to qualify why Jesus is worthy of our fixing our eyes upon him. Because for the joy, important word, set before him. He what? He endured. Same word. He didn't toss off. He remained under the load of the what? He endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
Is the cross a bad day? It's a bad day. A few weeks back, we looked at exactly how bad it is. We looked at the crucifixion. Not just the crucifixion, we looked at the beatings up to the crucifixion. We looked at the pain, we looked at the agony. It was a bad day. Between the description and some of the images that we showed you, uh, we had one person that had to get up and leave. And Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Is the cross joy? I don't think that's the point. The joy set before him, before him, future, down the road. In fact, the picture here is, if you think about it, that Jesus, knowing the big picture, endured, remained under the temporary, current load of the cross. Because he knew it was to come, he was able to endure, run the race, set before him. Not toss the weight of the cross away, but remain under the load. Keep going. Despising the shame, and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Was he elevated once again? Absolutely. Remains under the load, faithful in the midst, looks forward to the joy that is set before him. And now finds himself where? Disappointed? No. Put to shame? No. Elevated at the right hand of the Father. But he endured. He was our model. Keep going. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Implication here is? You're going to find yourself in a suffering, painful situation at some point as well. Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. Interesting, the next section here. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, though, in your striving against sin, like Jesus did. Any of you shed blood in your resisting? In your faithfulness to this point? Probably not. Probably not. But Paul, Paul bore in his body the marks of Jesus. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And discipline here, it carries the idea not of you sin and God has to whoop you, but it's the idea of, it's the idea of proving. It's the idea of shaping. You see, in context here, Jesus did not need to be disciplined. That's not why he went to the cross. Discipline here is not punishment for sinfulness. That, that wasn't the picture. That's not the model of Jesus. It's the trials that came. And so discipline here, you have to understand, is, is our same current theme of, of trials, various trials. It doesn't necessarily have to be that it's sin brought upon by or it's penalty brought upon by your sin. But sons, we, we endure this. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Verse seven, it is for discipline that you see the word endure. God deals with you as sons. okay, loved ones, so to speak. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, big verse right here, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children 
fraudulent, so to speak. (laughs) Fake. You're not real. If you never find yourself in one of these various trials, it doesn't fit sonship. It doesn't fit becoming a joint heir with Christ. Romans says that we know that we are His if we suffer with Him. Jesus warned His disciples over and over, they hated me, they're going to hate you. You will suffer. You're going to face stuff. If you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, by the way, all have become partakers, all of us have our share, by the way, then the truth is you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respect them, don't we? Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. And we, we goof it up, right, dads? But He, the Father in heaven, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. It's part of our sanctifying. It's part of our maturing, making complete not lacking in anything, becoming like Christ, the firstborn among many brethren. All discipline, verse 11, for the moment seems not to be, what? Joyful. It doesn't seem to be joyful. And James would not tell us that we are to just laugh like fools in the midst of pain. But there is a depth of joy in the, in the, in the spirit of every believer, in the soul of every believer, That although it at the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those whom have been trained, great word, those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields, it produces, it, it, it grows the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Go back to James. Jesus did it. Jesus endured because he had the correct perspective. For the joy set before him, the joy was not the cross. That was pain. He saw through the cross to the joy that would come because of the cross. The joy set before him, he what? He remained under the load. He endured the current situation, which was not a pleasant one. Why? Because the big picture was that he knew there was something more glorious. He understood the big picture and he found it to be worth the submission of his will. Christ's flesh might have wanted another way around the cross. But you remember his prayer in the, in the garden? Remember his prayer? Not my will. I think referring to his flesh. His flesh, his flesh didn't want to go there. His humanity didn't want to go there. Not my will, however, but your will. If you could take this cup from me, that'd be great, but not my will, your will. He submitted his will to what? God's will and the current situation that God's will put him on. The current situation, the current context of the life of Christ was was coming crucifixion. And he was able to submit his will, escaping that load, to God's will, carrying that load, because there was a greater joy beyond the enduring of the pain. Jesus is our model. Question. Is that okay with you? I mean, really, is that okay with you? Is it okay if the, the path of your life has a cross 
planted somewhere along the, along the way. According to the will of God. Would that be okay? Are you confident that God's will is best no matter what path it leads you down? Are you confident that God's will is best no matter what path it leads you down? Uh, in our life groups, we're reading the book Crazy Love by Francis Chan. Some of you have uh, endured to the end of the book. Some of you have fallen off. And uh, hopefully you pick it back up and you, you don't let that one be one of those books that uh, you read the first couple chapters and you missed the rest. Uh, finish this one, guys. Believe me. Finish it. It parallels very well with what we've been talking about. Even if, you, even if you're just jumping into chapter 3 or you just start chapter 1, get back in it. Because as we go through James, especially this beginning part, it, it's going to be a parallel challenge for you. But uh, recently, in I think chapter 8, he, uh, he's been upping the challenge for believers. And he's essentially uh, asking the same question to us. Is our, is our faith real? To the, point, to the point that we would do crazy stuff. God's love for us, the premise of the book is God's love for us is ridiculous. It's crazy how much he loves us, that he would go to this extent. In return, our love should be just as crazy. And there should be some markers in our life. There should be some indications. Our life should look like this. Our life should start looking like this. Because we are in crazy love with our God who was in crazy love with us. And he's, he's sort of ramping it up towards the end of the book. And he, and he says something that, that most of us at the beginning, as when we first hear it, we think, man, that's pretty, that's pretty tough. But if you understand it in the, in, in the, proper, in the proper context, that he's, he's upping the ante of our faith. He's really trying to nail us down on, are we legitimate? Is our faith fraudulent? You'll understand. He says, he says this. Why do, we, uh, why do we all, when we go on trips or mission trips or just uh, road trips, etc., feel, uh, feel like we have to ask God for his protection? God, give us your traveling mercies. We send off so-and-so. Kimberly and uh, Corbin flew to Indiana yesterday. And uh, when Grady and I dropped him off at the airport, I felt... Uh, I felt just automatically in my heart that I needed to pray for them. God, keep them safe. Help them arrive where they go. They got to fly to Indianapolis and then they got to drive an hour and a half. Uh, the whole path. We had a guy in, uh, light, um, in men's prayer group this morning that shared with us, confessed to us this morning that that, that that challenge challenged him from the book Crazy Love. And he said when he goes on, on business trips and things, to the, he, he, he takes it this serious. He prays not only take care of them, but he says, I use my specific address. Get me back home to this address, Lord. Right? And I thought, no, that's good. I like that. I like that. But now understand, understand here the challenge, the question. Is it bad to pray for traveling graces and, and hedges of protection, etc.? No. And, and, you know, I had this in my mind yesterday when, when I dropped them off at the airport and automatically I felt like I need to pray for my, my wife and my son. Lord, bring them back to me safely. And I said, wow, should I pray that? Because what if God has a different path? What if the plane goes down? What if for every reason that's the path I find myself on in a few hours that I get a call? Listen, whatever the worst you can imagine is, it happens. And I'm asking myself, so Lord, should I even pray for that? And I'll tell you, I, I felt completely fine <laughs> saying amen to that prayer. Lord, keep them safe. But the test to my heart, the test to my faith remains the same. What if? What if the path tomorrow changes? What if it shifts? What if it's what if it's not Good news. Where does that leave me in my faith? Am I devastated? Do I let go? Do I flee from my faith? Do I drop the load? Do I run away? Or do I run to God? 
Do I rest in Him? What will my faith look like on that bad day? So is it okay if there's a cross on your path? And even even harder of a question, even more difficult of a question, is it okay if, uh, if it's not a cross on your path, but on one of your loved one's paths? And Lord, surely I'll give you whatever I got. I'll go wherever you want. I'll do whatever you, you ask. I'll sacrifice whatever you call me to sacrifice. Ask of me anything you want. Place upon me any burden you desire. What if he says it's for your wife? What if he says it's for, it's for your son? Where does, that, where does that leave you? Can I endure Will I flee or will I remain? Jesus, what a great example of one who endures. In our series on communion, we saw this. One of the passages we saw in the, in the Gospels is that Jesus, before he took the last Passover meal with his disciples, one of the passages said something odd. Remember we focused on it? It says that he, he actually looked forward to sharing this meal, this meal in particular with his disciples like he longed he was excited he looked forward to sharing this meal knowing all the while that this meal was symbolic of his sacrifice that the bread and the wine the broken and the spilled out on the table was him to do this in remembrance of me was me going to the cross he 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 saw all that and knew all that and it, yet it still says that he he looked forward to sharing that meal with them and and you got to just ask and maybe I'm Maybe, maybe I'm taking some liberties here with that passage. But for the joy set before him, the big picture he endured. And he, and, he, and he sat there and he shared that meal willingly with his disciples. And he saw the pain on the table. But he also saw something else. Jesus, of course, is the perfect example to us. He's a perfect example of what James is teaching here. A big picture perspective that overrides our will even in extreme situations, even when we face personal hardship. Paul used the same formula, didn't he? Paul used the same formula. Same formula for faith. Romans 12, 1 and 2. One of the first verses I ever memorized. Some of you could quote it right now. I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living what? Living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable, which is your reasonable service of worship. It comes in chapter twelve. You get you get eleven chapters of doctrine, and then he turns to the believer and he says, "Now, brethren, I beseech you, I beg you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice." You've heard sermons on a living sacrifice. That's what James is calling us to be—a living sacrifice. That although we're living. We sacrifice. Although we live, we die. Although we're living, we, we chalk up whatever the path He gives us to His glory. But there's a phrase in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that, that I missed for a long time. And I don't want, I don't want us to miss it because I, I think it, it's the same formula for faith that James uses. He says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's the motive. 
How can I ask you to be a living sacrifice? It's by the mercies of God. The mercies of God, I think, is a summary of 11 chapters of Romans. Here's what God's done for you. Here's who you were. Here's what he did. Here's the confidence you have. Now, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's like he just he just packages 11 chapters in that one phrase. It is the mercy of God that you were this person and he did this and now you get this. So you give him chapter 12 this. I'm begging you. That's the formula to faith. Formula of faith is understanding. It's understanding the big picture. It's knowing the mercies of God. It's knowing, it's knowing beyond the situation. It's knowing beyond the pain. It's, it's, it's Romans 12, 1, knowing that I can be a living sacrifice because God is so good. And he's been so good and he will continue to be so good. And everything that he's done has proven his faithfulness to me. And so whatever the living sacrifice part means, because of his mercy, I can endure By the way, the big picture perspective, the big picture perspective is the wisdom of God in verse 5. James 1, 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. The wisdom that comes from God, that's that big perspective that sometimes we, we lack. It is for us, that wisdom is for us the anchor of the soul. It's the anchor of the soul in this crazy storm we call life. Picture he gives us, lost at sea, battered, tossed to and fro by all the winds, all the troubles, all the trials of this life. The anchor we have is the wisdom of God. It's this big picture understanding that Jesus had, that Paul had, that James understands that though there is pain in the moment, there is joy in the morning. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because of the mercies of God, you can be a living sacrifice, however However painful being a sacrifice is, it's that big picture that is the wisdom of God. And it's what many of us lack. If you have it, if you have that wisdom, you can hold on. Then you have that anchor. You're not tossed to and fro like the like the the guy drowning in the sea of the trials of our life. If you don't have that anger anchor, then guess what? You're tossed to and fro. You are unstable in all your ways. You have no sure footing. You have no no ground to stand upon. Your foundation is, is weak. Your footing is unsure. And you, therefore, become unstable. You have no anchor of the soul. Because you have no big picture perspective. You, you're lacking the wisdom of God. Many of us, we spend too much time in that ocean flopping around spiritually, grasping for something, but nothing, nothing, other than, nothing other than God and His wisdom is nailed down, so to speak. Incidentally, uh, you have the wisdom of God in your hand, don't you? You know, I don't know that I mentioned this last week when we talked about if any of you lack wisdom, ask God. Um, you actually have the wisdom of God as much as God has said we need in this life. We have what we need for life and godliness in his word. Artaxerxes noticed this in Ezra. Pagan king said to Ezra, do according to all that your God has 
told you. You have, in fact, the wisdom of God in your very hand, Ezra. And sometimes uh, we are flailing around in the storm of life because we haven't grabbed hold of the anchor. We haven't either asked God for wisdom. And some of us have not absorbed the wisdom that God has already given us. I wonder sometimes if God would just, when we pray, like to say, listen, I gave you an answer to that. It's right back here, man. Listen, flip back here to Zephaniah or Amos or even go, go forward a little bit. Go to Hebrews. I, got, I gave you some answers. We have, we have wisdom from God. Absorb it. Read it. That's why we preach it. We're not just doing the book of James to kill time here. We don't go through doctrine on Sunday morning. We don't go through, through books of the Bible on Sunday morning just for the fun of it. We do it because you need it out there. You need it out there. You need to be able to recall this. It is the wisdom of God in your hand. Are we taking advantage of it? I think it was Spurgeon who said, uh, many of us have enough dust on the cover of our Bible to write damnation in our finger. Because we never crack it open. It stays under the back, you know, floorboard, under the seat of our car. Me included. Me included. This wisdom does something else for us. does something else for the believer as well. It not only gives us the big picture perspective for life, but it keeps, it keeps us in perspective. All right? Now, all that was review. Here's today's message. Next verses. The big picture. This wisdom, it not only, it not only gives us a, a correct perspective for life in general, but it gives us a correct view of ourselves in the midst of that life. Watch this. Having a big picture perspective clarifies our place in the picture. And what it shows us is that we are not on center stage. Do you know that? You're not on center stage. A correct perspective of your life means that you correctly then understand that the spotlight's not on you. That people aren't paying tickets to come see you. The glory does not go to you. It's not about, it's not about you in the end. You have a part in this play? You absolutely do. But you're not the star. See, wisdom brings a perspective, a correct perspective of life, but it also brings a correct perspective of where you fit in this whole storm of life. The problem that James recognizes is that uh, without a correct perspective on life, we become myopic, nearsighted, short-sighted. The focus is on me. The focus is on my stuff. The focus is on my life. The focus is on my pain. What I'm missing, what I'm not getting, the blessing I don't have, what he's got and what I don't have, and the pain I have to endure and what's going on in my life. It's not a big picture and our eyes are down here. Our eyes never, never see this. And so we are the guy who's flailing around in the storm of life because we never look up. We don't know where to go for wisdom. We don't have a big picture perspective. And so when our eyes are down here, the only one we have to depend on is ourself. And so that's where our focus is. And so we're grasping for anything that might float. We're paddling as hard as we can. And we're still going down. And we look foolish and we look ridiculous. When there's something strong and sure to grasp onto. But our focus is here. 
It never, it never catches the big picture. James addresses this tendency in the next few verses. All right? You understand where we are. Now watch this. Watch this. Verse 9 through 12. But the brother of humble circumstances. Humble circumstances here in the context mean that you're having the bad day. Okay? That's your humble circumstances. Those who are dispersed in verse 1, 12 tribes dispersed abroad, they, believe me, were of humble circumstance. This wasn't the highlight of Israel's history. Okay? They were poor. They were desperate. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory or... uh, Glory in this, in this context means to, uh, uh, to take joy in, to find uh, happiness in, to, to boast in, to, to glory in. Okay? He is to glory in his what? High position. Now that doesn't make sense in the moment, does it? The brother of humble circumstances, glory in your high position. I'm not in a high position. You just said it yourself. I'm in a low circumstance. <laughs> I'm poor. I'm desperate. I'm dying down here. Life is beating me up down here. That's me. What do you mean glory in my high position? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's, a, it's an understanding. It's a wisdom, isn't it? It's a not now, but will be. It's a big picture perspective that he's commanding here. To the guy who finds himself in the midst of the hard day. Brother, you find yourself in humble circumstances? Glory in this. Your high position. Now we know that the high position is not necessarily now. It's not necessarily now. Is it one day? Absolutely. That's where we glory. That is to be our perspective. That's where we fit in the play. Lowly now, elevated one day. Cross now, the right hand of the Father, seated in glory. We're joint heirs. And the rich man, can't leave him out. Some of you are rich. Rich meaning you're not of humble circumstance. What is he to do? Well, he's to glory as well. But he's to glory, not in his humble circumstance or not in his high position. He's to glory in his humiliation. Why? Because he paints a picture here. It's reminiscent of uh, Isaiah 40. He is to glory in his high position of humble circumstance. The rich man now is to glory in his humiliation. And here's the picture. Because like flowering grass, that's grass that has a flower, He will pass away. Why would he pass away? Because one day the sun rises and a scorching wind, literally it's the scorching wind in the Middle East. There's a there's a there's a wind that uh, it's kind of like a I would imagine you could explain it like a Texas heat wave. Okay, it's like uh, when we moved to Texas, it was 115 degrees. You'd open your door and uh, it felt like you're just sticking your head in the oven at 400 degrees. That's how it felt. In the Middle East, there's this wind. I think it's called a Sirocco wind. And it blows over the land. You get the scorching sun. And then this just this oven heat blows across the land. And it just 
kills every flower in the way. Every vegetation in its path, it just burns up. So the readers would know exactly. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off. By the way, that flower, if you want to draw a circle around it, you could equate it to the rich man. He's got his reward. He's got his extravagance here in this life. Problem is, one day the sun's going to come out. The wind is going to sweep across the land. And that flower will go away. It's a picture of death here that he's painting. It's a picture of judgment. It's the great equalizer between the man of humble circumstance and the rich man. It's called death. When all that is of this life just... It's burned up. Watch what he says. Because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, his flowers, those achievements in this life, they're fine, but they will fade away. They will fade away. It's perspective here. What are these verses about? It's perspective. Find yourself in humble circumstances? Don't worry. You will be elevated one day. You find yourself in, in blessed circumstances? Guess what? Glory in your humiliation. Humiliation, coming from the word humbling. Glory in those trials, context, that humble you in this life, that help you to see that your faith is not in your finances, your faith is not in your flowering, your faith is not in what you've achieved, but glory in your humiliating circumstances because you understand, even as a rich man, just as the poor man does, that when death comes, all that goes away and all we're left with is what we have in the anchor of our God. That's the point. That's why he paints this picture. We're all, no matter what our lot in life, big picture, big picture, we're all to understand that our place, that our place isn't center stage. We have a role to play for the glory of God. And whether we find ourselves in humble circumstances or in grand, blessed circumstances, we all know, right, that one day the playing field will be leveled. It's not about what we what we have here is not about what we don't have here. That's not what we'll be rewarded on in heaven. In the future, there is laid up for me exactly what James said, a crown. He calls it here a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. It's a promise he clings to. It's a future promise he clings to. You get this? It's a big perspective promise he clings to. He knows that his today hardship will end in tomorrow's crown. That's the right perspective. And here's the promise for us. End of eight. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Great phrase there, loved his appearing. But not all of us are longing or loving His appearing, are we? Not all of us are looking to the sky. Not all of us see the big picture. 
too many of us are focused down here. It's me, my life. I'm beating through this life. I'm trying the best I can. I'm grabbing on to what I can to stay afloat. Not all of us, like his good friend Demas here in verse 10. Keep going. Make every effort to come to me soon. Here's why. Because Demas, Demas was a lawyer, by the way, having loved this present world. If you want to circle a couple of phrases here, the parallel is, Paul said, you and I who will receive that crown one day, we get that crown because we long for his appearing. We have a big picture perspective. It's not about the here and now. So come what may down here. I don't care. I'll fight that good fight. I'll finish that course. But to those of us who love his appearing and we fight through all this, we'll receive a crown one day. I get that so I can deal with this. But guys, come on quickly. I'm about to die down here. And this guy left. Why? Because he longed not for the appearing of the Lord. He loved not the appearing of the world. But what does it say? Having loved this present world. He's looking down here. And when things were going haywire for Paul, he bailed, man. So which one are we? James 1.12 ends, and it says that that, craw, uh, that crown that will be given, it will be given to those who what? What does it say at the very end? Last phrase. To those who love him. I'm so glad that, that James put that in there. It's almost as if, in my mind, that James said, you know what, this guy that I'm describing in these first 12 verses here who can endure hardship, whose faith is not fraudulent, if I, had to, if I had to label him, it's very simply this. He's the guy who loves the Lord. To him who loves the Lord. You have the promise of that cross, even though right here there may be pain. Um, it used to be, in here in the South, that uh, we could, you know, you could, if you met somebody, you could ask them if you were so bold to do so. Hey, man, are you are you a believer, sir, ma'am? Are you a believer? And if they said yes, then you had a good you had a good indication of whether or not they were a true, real believer. Or if you ask them, um, are you say are are you a Christian? Yeah, are you a Christian? And if they say I'm a Christian, then you you were you were pretty well confident that they were actually a Christian. Are you saved even? And that's even a more difficult, challenging one, really. You could ask, are you saved? And, they, and if they said, yeah, I'm, I've been saved, you, you almost, you, you could be confident in their, in their faith that it wasn't fraudulent. Um, in the last few years, uh, there, there's kind of a different way we ask it. Uh, a lot of churches are not calling you Christians anymore. Uh, they're starting to use the term, are you, are you a Christ follower? We're Christ followers. And, and, and that's probably helpful in some ways. But you could have people tell you they're Christ followers. And I guess what I'm saying is that nowadays you could ask people those questions. Are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Are you even saved? Are you a Christ follower? And you could get a yes, perhaps. But the truth is it's, it's become a lot more difficult to actually know if they actually understand or actually mean what you mean when you ask them that. Does that make sense? I mean, you can ask somebody, especially in the Southeast, especially in the Bible Belt. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And, and from the professional perspective, okay, from, from pastoral perspective, it really it's not even a good question anymore. It doesn't mean, I mean, we don't, we don't really get a good answer. You know what? I, 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 just recently, um, 
I think the only question that is left to ask that actually gets to it and, and, and reveals truth, perhaps, of whether or not faith is real or fraudulent, it's where James left off. It's where I think Paul left off at the end of his life in Second Timothy. Is It's this idea of love. So now the question, and it's a little harder to ask, frankly, even as a pastor. I'll admit, it's a little harder to ask. You've got to be a little more bold to ask because it says something about you even. But the question now is, Eddie, do you, do you love Jesus? Now that, that's, a, that's a tough, direct, specific. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, oh, I'm a believer. Yeah, I've been saved. Hey, but hey man, are you in love with Jesus? For me, I mean, it, it's come down to really that's the only telling thing. For James, I think, I think in the end there he kind of revealed that that's really the only telling deal of whether or not our faith is legitimate, whether or not our faith is going to remain or whether it's going to flee. Is It comes down to do you love Jesus? I mean, do, you, do you love Him? Are you in this love relationship with Him? More than it. More than your Christianity, more than your churchianity, more than your, uh, more than anything else, can can you say in your heart, I'm I'm in love with Christ, I'm in love with Jesus. The guy who can say that tends to be the guy who can endure. My prayer is that that becomes true about more and more of us here at Cornerstone. Let's pray. Father God. uh, Thank you for your word. I, I, don't, I, I don't know where else to start this prayer, but to thank you for your word. And uh, I think of the words of, uh, of Moses before his death to his people. And he said to Israel that, that your word is not an idle word. It is our very life. It's not, it's not idle. It doesn't just, it's not just flashy and make a bunch of noise, but not go anywhere. Oh, thank you for your word. Thank you for James that tells us what to do and how to deal. The right perspective to have about this life and about our part in it and about our place in it, about our lot in this life. Thank you, Lord, that you give us you give us wisdom. You give us perspective. Help us to dive into it. Help us to know it better. Help, it, help us to hide it in our hearts so that when we're out there on Monday and Tuesday and life is slapping us around, that we'll have the anchor of wisdom through your word and through the spirit that resides in us, that we will not be tossed to and fro. But that we'll be able to endure the storm. Lord God, the storm isn't going to go away. This life, it's on a downhill slope. Humanity is is not getting any better, Lord. Come back soon. Come back soon. Lord, I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see them get married. I want to see them fall in love. Uh, Lord, I want to see them have children. I I, I want to grow old with my wife. I I want to retire. I want to go go to the beach again. But nothing, nothing, none of that compares to you, Lord. Come back today. Come back today. You're the best thing for us. Give us a big picture perspective. 
Give us the wisdom that is beyond us. Give us the wisdom that raises our sights off of loving the things of this world and focusing on our own stuff and our own problems and our own life and flailing around down here in our spirituality. Give us, a, give us the anchor that is your sovereignty. Give us the anchor that is your glory. Give us the anchor that is your truth. Give us the anchor that is your salvation. Give us, give us the joy of, of our salvation and give us the joy of salvation of those around us and in this place called Cornerstone. Bring many to Jesus. Bring many to the cross. Bring many to repentance, Lord. I know that I know that you're only waiting because you're patient and you're not willing that any would perish, but that all might come to salvation. Lord, thank you for being patient. My prayer is that you'd come back today. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for waiting on the salvation of my sons. Thank you for waiting on the salvation of my loved ones, of some of my friends. Lord, cause me to pray harder for them. Cause me to speak more boldly for them. God, give us a big perspective. In the light of your glory and grace, all this stuff down here grows oddly and strangely dim. Lord, when we see you and when we see your glory, when we see your sovereignty, when we see your plan, Lord, all this stuff down here, it becomes more and more inconsequential. We can deal with it. We can cope. We can go through the cross to get the crown. We can go through the pain knowing that there is joy set before us, just like Jesus. Who is, who is the beginning and the end, the author and the perfecter of our faith? Lord, help us to be able to say like Paul that we have fought the good fight in our days. We have run the course, whatever obstacles are on it. We have finished the race. And we have kept our faith. Our faith will not, our faith will not prove to be fraudulent in this place. Grow believers in this place. Produce endurance in them so that your glory may be obvious through their life. Come what may, may it be pain or may it be blessing, your glory would be obvious. Grow us up, God. Make us strong. Grow us up. Make us mature. Make us whole. Make us complete. Lacking in nothing, just like your son, the first fruit of many brethren, the one we're growing up to be just like, to be just like. guys are going to sing. Why don't you just stay seated? You keep praying. You keep begging God, beseeching God for faith, for endurance, for strength. Ask the Holy Spirit to not to not quiet when you walk out of this place and you start your Monday. Ask the Holy Spirit to be loud Monday. Ask the Holy Spirit to be loud on Tuesday and on Wednesday. And if it's a good day or if it's a bad day, ask the Holy Spirit to be obvious. Ask God to be real when you're at the office. Ask God to be real when you're driving in your car. Ask Him to be real when you're talking to your spouse. Ask Him to be real when you're, when you're hugging your children. Ask Him to be real all week long. Don't leave your God in this place. Don't leave your Jesus in this place. Long for Him. Love His appearing. Don't focus on this world. As we sing, you pray and you ask God and then we're going to dismiss. And we're not going to leave our God here. We're going to go with him. We're going to take him with us. He is in us and we are in him. Our faith will be real. It will not be fraudulent. No matter what the week brings, we sing.
of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. When I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me. When the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, a snow marked with suffering for all this pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be the name, Jesus, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name, you give and take away. You give and take away, and my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and take away, you give and take away, and my heart will choose to say, Oh, blessed be your name, oh, blessed be the name of the Lord, yeah, blessed be your name, oh, blessed be the name of the Lord, yeah, blessed be your glorious name, so blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. 